Would you stand as we read scripture together? This is the gospel according to Mark, chapter 3. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. What an incredible thing to be reminded that we are his brothers, we are his sisters, we who are saved are the children of God, we are heirs with Jesus. He has given us so much. Father, I pray that you would allow the words of this scripture passage and the words that David speaks today to come alive in our spirits so that when we leave this place, we will never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. I love seeing that clip of Mike, over the next few weeks, uh, you guys will get an opportunity to see more of those clips as we continue this series in Mark, which is a great opportunity for us to see how uh, different and diverse and broad our family of churches are, how different the pastors are and the worship experiences are and the sermons are and all of those things. Um, I, I couldn't also help but thinking as I was watching that clip how much better dressed most of the pastors tend to be than me. It's a, it, I, I may need to reevaluate my wardrobe over the night. No? Well, thank you, Nikki. Um, I appreciate that. Encouraging words. When I was a senior in high school, uh, I got myself into a bit of a pickle. Uh, and every time I read this passage that Dr. Terry read for us this morning, I'm reminded of that day. Uh, you see, I had gotten a speeding ticket, not just a regular speeding ticket, one of the big boy speeding tickets, um, that comes with it an eight hour driving school. Is somebody covering Ruby Loves Ears right now? Um, the driving school that they offer was only available during the week. So my solution was, I mean, we couldn't really tell my parents, they wouldn't understand. So I would just skip school, go to driving school and be done by the time basketball practice started. Bing, bang, boom. No harm, no foul. I'm in, I'm out. Well, through a long series of unfortunate events, uh, mom and dad, Hannah, found out about my scheme. And about five minutes into basketball practice, the coach walks in as we're warming up and he says, Hannah, your parents are outside waiting on you. 
As soon as he said those words, I knew the jig was up. I had no doubt as to why they were there. I had no doubt as to what they wanted. And I have often wondered what would have happened if I said to my coach, my family is right here. I can't imagine that would have ended well, but every time I see Jesus in this scene, I think of that day. This passage at the end of Mark chapter 3, let's be honest, it's one of the more awkward, uncomfortable passages that we read. As we hear Jesus' words, as we think of that scene, most of us have one of two instinctive and visceral reactions. There are those that read this passage and they are horrified. There are those that read this passage and are filled with a sense of comfort and relief. Before we are able to explore those two reactions, let's remind ourselves of the scene. Let's remind ourselves of where Jesus is in his story, in his ministry. Last week, we were able to see the opening moments of Jesus' public ministry. And from the very beginning, Jesus declares his authority. He goes into the temple. He teaches. He casts out a demon. He heals Peter's sick mother-in-law. Publicly declaring his authority over God's word, his authority over over demons, his authority over sickness and disease. At the end of chapter 1, immediately following those events, we see Jesus go to a place of solitude, go to a place to be alone with his father, to pray and to rest, go to Sabbath, which is something we'll be talking about in our coffeehouse conversations in April, in case you're interested. When he's there, when he's alone with his father, Peter shows up and he's like, um, hey, Jesus, so you made some waves. People saw what you did in the synagogue. They saw you cast out the demon. They heard about you healing Peter's mother and they want to hear more. They want to see more. And at the end of Mark chapter 1, we have Jesus saying, okay, it's go time. Let's go into all the surrounding towns and all the surrounding villages so that I can preach because that's why I'm here. That's why I came. Over the next two chapters, that's exactly what we see. Jesus is in Galilee, which is his home region. It's not his hometown, But he would have been incredibly familiar with the people, with the culture, with the customs. And he's going from town to town, from village to village. And he's healing people and he's casting out demons and he's teaching and he's preaching. And most shocking to those that were there at the time, 
he's forgiving sins, which for them, that would have been kind of the line in the sand. It's one thing to heal. It's one thing to cast out a demon. It's one thing to teach with power and authority. It's something totally different to forgive sins because that is something only God can do. And it's in those moments that Jesus' presence itself became divisive. In those first couple of chapters leading up to the story in chapter 3, we see people questioning who he is. We see some people embracing his teaching and who he was and running to him and following him. We see the religious elite getting more and more uncomfortable, more and more threatened by what this man was claiming. Culminating in chapter 3, verse 6. Immediately after Jesus has again healed another person, this time on the Sabbath, violating the Sabbath law in the minds of the Pharisees. And in verse 6, we see the Pharisees go out and start plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Well, just like that, things got real. Just like that, it goes from who is this guy, what is he talking about, we all need to kind of make a declaration on his teaching and and where we stand, and suddenly it goes from that to the religious elite actively plotting to have him killed. We've got to get rid of this dude. As you can imagine... Here in Galilee, crowds beginning to follow him, not only as we see in chapter 3, not only from the towns and villages in Galilee, but from as far as Jerusalem, cities all around the region. Word is spreading. As all of this is happening, as people are hearing what he's teaching, they're seeing what he's doing, Jesus' family would have heard all of this. And they're getting concerned. They're getting scared. They knew the potential consequences of some of the things that Jesus was claiming. Frankly, they're probably getting a little embarrassed. I mean, these things, they don't reflect too well on a nice, traditional, good Jewish family. He might be getting a little bit angry. Come on, dude, pump the brakes. Like we know from John chapter 7 that Jesus' own brothers didn't even believe he was the Messiah. We see here in Mark chapter 3 verse 21, his family thought he was crazy. They thought he had gone out of his mind. And it had gone too far. So now in this passage... We see Jesus with his 12 disciples, his closest followers. They go into a house, no doubt, to rest, to eat, to relax for the night. But before they can even settle in, all of these crowds from everywhere pour in to this house. So quickly, they don't even have a chance to grab a bite to eat. And it's in that moment that word begins begins to filter through the house all the way up to Jesus himself. 
your mom, your brothers, your sisters, they're all outside. They want to talk with you. Just like me standing in that gym, hearing that my parents were outside, Jesus in that moment knew exactly why they were there. They had had enough and it was time to take him home. And Jesus in that moment recognizes the opportunity to teach. And he looks around the circle. He looks at the people gathered in that room. And he says, my family's right here. Now, you need to understand how crazy that would have sounded to a first century Jew. In that culture, at that time, family was everything. In that culture, at that time, family was the foundation of of society. It was your economic status. It was 100% of your identity. To say, while there are blood relatives outside that these people in front of you that you barely knew were your family would have been shocking to anyone that heard it. Then Jesus goes on to unpack that a little bit. He doesn't just simply stop with, you guys are my family. He goes on to say, anyone, whoever does the will of my father, That's my family. For many of us here this morning, that line, whoever does the will of my father is my family. Whoever does the will of my father, that's my brothers and my sister and my mother. To many of us, that's the hardest line to swallow. It it seems maybe a little bait and switchy. Let's be honest, it, it seems maybe a little manipulative if you do what I say then you're my family some of us have been in families like that it's not very comfortable is it it's not very fulfilling as as Jesus says those words what is he talking about he says Those of you that are in this room, you're my family. Because anyone that does the will of my father is my family. Well, let's think about who was in that room. First of all, we know that all 12 disciples were in there. We also know that famously they were all knuckleheads. Every single one. Fallen and broken. Every single one throughout the Gospels, Jesus would give these parables, and then he'd have to look at them and talk to them because they were like, I I got no idea what you're talking about. Completely lost. We also see from Mark chapter 3 that people had come to follow him from everywhere, not just there in Galilee, but from all the surrounding regions. All the surrounding towns. 
different cultures, different tribes. Men, women, old, young, married, single, they were all in that room. All of which had two things in common. They were broken and imperfect. And they believed in who Jesus was to the point that they followed him. That's who Jesus identified as his family. Those who believe and follow. We get a little more clarity in in this belief as the will of God in Jesus' words in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, who looks to me, and believes in him shall have eternal life. Those who do the will of my Father, those who believe and follow, those are my family. Now, in that moment, in that scene, As that was happening, those same two instinctive, visceral reactions would have been occurring. As Jesus hears the word and he says, you people in here, you people in this room, you are my family. As that word filters back to his mother and to his brothers and to his sisters, they would have been horrified. How dare he? How dare he claim those men and women that he barely knows as his family when his real family is standing here outside waiting on him? Many of us this morning, as we read this passage in Mark chapter 3, can almost immediately identify with those emotions. Wait a second. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're telling me that I'm supposed to turn my back on my family because the church is now my family. No. We are not telling you that. No, that is not what Christ modeled for us. But what we must admit to ourselves and to one another this morning is that in the church, way too often, we elevate family above the gospel. For many of us, family has become an idol, that thing that we have elevated above our creator. And oftentimes, that is accepted and maybe even encouraged in the church. 
So many of us recognize Jesus Christ as our Savior, but stop short of Jesus Christ as our Lord because we have priorities here. Jesus, thank you so much for what you did on the cross for me. But there are certain things that I just can't do. There's a price I'm not quite willing to pay. Jesus is not telling us not to love our families. Jesus is not telling us not to take care of our families, not to raise our children well. That is not what he teaches, and that's not what he modeled for us. Jesus respected and loved his family. He respected his mother. He honored his family. The very first miracle we have recorded of Jesus, we see in John chapter 2. Jesus is hanging out with his buddies at a wedding. He hasn't quite really started his public ministry yet. Next thing you know, his mom rolls in. And Mary says, hey, Jesus. So the host is out of wine. And I need you to take care of that. And Jesus says, mom, it's not time yet. It's not time for me to do that. If I do that, everybody's going to see. And I love Mary's reaction in John chapter 2 because she does not even acknowledge Jesus' objections. She She says, the host is out of wine. I need you to fix that. And as he's sitting there whining, she looks at the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And she walks away. Because she knows that her son will obey. She knows her son will honor his mother. And he does just that. He goes to the servants, grab those vases over there, fill them up with water, turns the water to wine, party goes on. Here here in Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. For putting religion over taking care of their family. The Pharisees had had been encouraging people to dedicate all of their wealth and all of their finances to the temple. Knowing that by doing so, they weren't going to be able to take care of their aging parents in, in their time of need. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you guys know you're breaking the commandments. You know you're encouraging people not to honor their mother and father. John chapter 19. As Jesus hangs bloodied and broken on the cross. Breathing his final breaths. His last direct command was to his disciple John. And he says, John, there's my mother. Take care of her. In his final moments, his thoughts were with his mother to make sure she was taken care of. Jesus is not telling us not to love and take care of our families. 
those of us that, that are blessed with families. Recognize that they are good, they are foundational, but also recognize that they are not ultimate. And that's where the mistakes are made. What I mean is, is family is, is vital. It can be a gift to be treasured. But virtually every pastor in America has story after story after story of believers displacing God in favor of family. Believers making decisions for their children based purely on what's going to make them happy, what's going to give them the best financial opportunities, Never once considering gospel ramifications. Here's the good news. When we recognize Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, when we completely release ourselves to His will, it frees us to become better mothers and better fathers. It frees us to become better siblings and better offspring. In short, family values, this thing that we so throw around and that has so been misused in so many ways, it comes from following Jesus. Do not let these words scare you. Rejoice in them. In that moment, as Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters were no doubt horrified by his words, at that exact same time, as he spoke those words, the people listening in that home would have been overwhelmed with a sense of comfort, with a sense of relief, Because so many people there would have severed family ties to seek out this man. So many people there were displaced, were isolated, were lonely. And to hear Jesus say, you are my family, would have filled them with an unspeakable joy. Over the last few weeks and months, I have heard story after story after story of those in our community that so identify with that sense of loneliness and isolation. Whether they come from broken families, whether they have put themselves in a position or simply life has happened to lead them to a place where they feel like they are on an island. If you are there, 
Let these words wash over you. Let these words of Jesus wrap you in a warm blanket. Let these words remind you that you have a family. You have a place. You are not alone. And remember who was in that house, who Jesus was speaking to. The doors were open to everybody. From all walks of life. From every tribe. From every culture. All you had to do was walk in. Faith in who he was made you a part of the family. Now, for just a moment, I want to have a word with those of us that are a part of this family. These bonds, this joy of family is not something we should simply desire. It is something we are called to be. Ask yourself, would you want you as a family member? You know, John 13, 35, they will know us by our love. Everybody loves that verse, right? Yes. They'll know us the way we love. That's awesome. It is awesome, but so often we ignore the context of that verse. Jesus is in his final days. He is with his disciples and he's reminding them, I'm not always going to be here. A time is coming soon when I'm going to leave you. With that in mind, I want to give you a new commandment. And that commandment is to love each other the way I have loved you. Think about that for a second. The way Jesus loved those guys. That's a tall order. And he gave a commandment. Love each other the way I have loved you. And then verse 35. The world will know you are my disciples. The world will know you are my followers. The world will know you are my family by the way you love each other. How amazing is it that we get to be a part of a family that loves each other so fiercely the entire planet will take notice. You know, in first century Israel, one of the most important symbols of family was the family meal. And the most important meal of the year was Passover. Passover was 
roughly analogous to a modern American Thanksgiving. It's that, that day, that moment that come hell or high water, you will bend time and space to be with your family at that meal because that was the meal where we honor and remember and celebrate that moment centuries before where their ancestors, slaves in Egypt, follow God's direction to prepare a meal for their family. And as they sat huddled together in their homes eating, having painted the lamb's blood on the doorstep, that blood signified to the angel of death himself to pass over the family. Jesus had his final meal at Passover. And he had that meal with his family. In that upper room, those same 12 guys that were in that room in Mark chapter 3. Jesus served them that Passover meal. And he said to them, this bread that you're eating is, is my body that will be broken for you. The wine that you drink tonight This is my blood, the new lamb sacrificed for you. This morning we have the incredible opportunity to share in that same meal. In just a couple of minutes, our deacons are going to come forward and they're going to pass out the elements of communion. As they pass them out, you're going to receive two cups, one on top of each other containing the elements. I ask that you receive those cups and you wait just a minute. Hold them. Pray over them. Remind yourself of the incredible sacrifice of God's Son. 100% divine, 100% man, authority over the Word of God, authority over demons and disease and death itself. Every ounce of authority it would have taken to pull himself off that cross at any moment, but he didn't. As you hold those cups, remind yourself of that sacrifice. Remind yourself of the good news that it didn't end that day. But three days later, there was an empty tomb. Thank the Lord that you get to be a part, that you have an invitation into a family that will love you so well the world will take notice. And then let's receive the elements, take the elements together as a family. As our deacons come forward, would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled and amazed by your presence with us here this morning. Grateful beyond words for the sacrifice of your son. 
grateful beyond measure that it didn't end on the cross. Thank you that fallen and broken we get to be a part of your eternal family. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, 
we see the picture of Jesus in that room with those men, with his family, and Jesus looks at them and he says, I desperately wanted to have this Passover meal with you before I suffer. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Lord, there's nothing else to say. It's in your son's precious name and by his blood that we pray. Amen.